0: This episode is brought to you by the Weather Channel app. Did you
1: know the app can help you forecast more than just the weather with allergy tracking and risk mapping? so you know when to stay inside and load up on podcast, as well as air quality and UV indexing so you know when to get outside, load up on sunscreen and podcast. Forecast more of what you love with the Weather Channel app. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Care Talk. My name is Laura Packard, and I'm the founder of Healthcare Voices. Uh, we're organizing adults with serious medical conditions. But I have a personal relationship to the American healthcare system because I'm also a cancer survivor. And I went through procedures that were denied by insurance, fighting surprise medical bills, and more. And in this show, the experts answer your questions so that you can get help with your health insurance and healthcare questions. Our special guest today is author Jonathan Cohn, who wrote this book, the 10 year war about the history of the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare. And he'll be on later on the show today, but first we are answering your healthcare and health insurance questions. Our first question is from Susan who wants to know, is it worth keeping my Humana account if drugs will have a yearly top price per year? So if you have prescription drug coverage through the Medicare Part D prescription drug benefit, you will have an out-of-pocket cap for all covered prescription drugs of $2,000 beginning in the year 2025. You'll need to have Part D coverage in order to benefit from that cap, whether you're enrolled in traditional Medicare or a Medicare Advantage plan. Our next question is from Jackie. Who wants to know how do you approach a doctor regarding accessing their care? Uh, perhaps if you are having problems affording uh, paying for services. And to answer that question, welcome Alika from Health Sherpa.
2: Thanks, Laura. Um, it's a good question. Uh, one thing I would just note, um, if you know, unclear from the what this caller has said, you know, whether they have insurance coverage or not. If you do have insurance coverage and you are looking to see a particular provider it is always a good idea to actually reach out to their office beforehand to confirm that they take your insurance. The directors that, directories that insurance companies put out are often quite out of date. Um, and if you don't sort of do that initial check, um, you mm-hmm. might be on the hook even if they say in the directory that that person... Um, that said, if you don't have insurance, um, it's always worth reaching out to their office as well and seeing if they offer some kind of cash pay option, um, maybe with uh,
1: sort of a, a payment plan uh, that might still allow you... Thanks, Alika. And our next question is, uh, what should you do if you can't afford your Medicare premiums? So depending on your income and assets, you might be eligible for Medicaid or a Medicare savings program that picks up the cost of your Medicare Part B premium. The Medicare savings program is administered through your state Medicaid program. If you're eligible for a Medicare savings program, you'll also automatically qualify for the extra help program, which helps pay most of your Medicare prescription drug part D plan costs. In some states, you qualify for the MSP program based on your income alone. So if you don't qualify for Medicaid because of excess resources, you could still qualify for one of the three Medicare savings programs, all of which pay the Medicare Part B premium. In most states, you will qualify for coverage of your Part B premium if your income is at or below uh, $1,660 a month or $2,239 for couples, and your savings are at or below $9,000 or so for a single and $13,630 for a couple. And Qualified Medicare Beneficiary, QMB, Pays for Medicare Part A premiums for people who don't have enough work history to qualify for free Part A's. QMB also pays the Part B premium deductibles and coinsurances. Medicaid eligible people who qualify for QMB cannot be charged for Medicare co-pays. And there's also the Specified Low Income Beneficiary Program, which pays a Medicare Part B premium for you, and the QI Qualifying Individual, uh, which pays the Medicare Part B premium. So there are a lot of possible programs for you, and you should probably start by contacting your state Medicaid office to figure out what you qualify for and how you can get help. Our next question is from Nuno, who wants to know, people on SSI and SSDI should qualify for Medicaid, but only people on SSI qualify. They keep lowering the income requirements so that people on SSDI don't qualify. So, Alika, can you explain what SSI and SSDI are and what could be going on?
2: Happy to, and while I'm not familiar with the income changes that specifically were mentioned, I'm happy to speak to the programs a little more generally and how they intersect with health coverage. Um, So again, SDI SSI sound very similar, but are two very different, um, or two different programs. Um, SSI stands for Supplemental Security Income um, and SSDI for Social Security Disability Insurance. And both are federal programs, both um, support folks with disabilities, but um, have different eligibility requirements and qualify you for healthcare in different ways. Um, So taking SSI first, that is a need-based program. So you do need to make under a certain income limit in order to qualify. Uh, Depending on your state, you might be eligible for Medicaid just automatically. You might be eligible, but actually have to go sign up for it um, in order to get the coverage, or your state might not um, actually make you eligible for Medicaid based on your SSI. uh, Eligibility status and though you might still qualify just for Medicaid generally based on your your lower income. Um, On the other hand, SSDI um, is a program that allows you to become eligible for Medicare after a 24-month waiting period. Um, If you are in that waiting period and you don't currently have coverage, um, what you can do or the best option is generally to submit an application through the marketplace, give all your income information. or your state exchange if that, if you're in a state that runs their own exchange, um, what that will do is it will check whether you're eligible for Medicaid just generally based on your income and your state's requirements, um, or um, if you're eligible perhaps for a subsidized plan on the health insurance marketplace.
1: And um, so that would probably be the best step if you are in that. Thanks, alica And our next question is, what are all the different types of Medicare? The alphabet soup of Medicare parts A, B, C, D, which ones do you need? So you will always need Medicare Parts A and B to cover your inpatient and outpatient medical care. Medicare Part A covers your inpatient care in a hospital or a nursing home or a rehab facility, for example. You generally get Medicare Part A automatically with no premium because of contributions to Medicare throughout you or your spouse's work history. Medicare Part B covers your outpatient care from physicians and other healthcare providers, as well as durable medical equipment and lab tests. Medicare Part D covers your prescription drug costs. And most people with Medicare do enroll in a Medicare Part D plan. Medicare Part C is another way of describing the Medicare Advantage program. You can elect Medicare Advantage and usually it will include Medicare prescription drug coverage. And to be covered through Medicare Advantage, you'll you'll need um, Medicare Parts A and B. So Medicare, uh, there's traditional Medicare and Medicare Advantage, uh, which is offered through um, insurance companies. Uh, So those are the uh, alphabet letters, and uh, you will need to to, uh, enroll once you turn 65. The next question is, can small business owners and employees use the Affordable Care Act for insurance? And if so, how?
2: Alika? Great question. And can I just say alphabet soup was a really great way to describe uh, the Medicare program as well. But in terms of um, business owners and employees using the ACA, there, the traditional sort of way that this was supposed to work was through SHOP, the Small Business Health Options Program, um, which was essentially going to be a way for employers to buy um, insurance through uh, sort of the, the state run exchanges. Um, that said, uh, that program has been sort of less popular in years. It really depends on your state whether that's still an option for you. The most recent data I was able to find um, sort of suggests that this is still an option in around 11 states. So you might Look into that to see if shop um, is a good option. It also offers some tax credits um, for at least a few years uh, for small business owners. Um, There is also a different way that you can um, offer coverage uh, as an employer through the marketplace. And that is by providing your employees with a stipend, uh, a certain amount of money each month to go out and buy their own insurance through um, their relevant exchange. Um, now, that uh, there are sort of two main programs that allow you to do that. Um, the first one is the QSE, Qualified Small Employer Health Reimbursement Account, um, generally sort of pronounced QSERA. Um, that is an older program that is only for small businesses um, and uh, essentially allows, again, you to sort of provide to generally all your employees um, a, a stipend. Um, that program does allow you, for example, if you would have qualified for tax credits, just generally, you can take kind of less of the CUSERA and more of the, you know, there's some coordination that goes on there. Um, the other program is called an Individual Coverage Health Reimbursement Account um, uh, Arrangement, and that, or, or ICRA. And that's a bit of a newer program. It's, you're able to use that for an employer of any size Um, And it's a little bit different, Um, for example, uh, you can actually elect to offer a an ICRA, the second type of program, only to certain groups of employees, certain classes of employees. So, for example, you could say, all my full-time employees will get a small business or a business uh, regular employer insurance plan, plan, but my part-time employees, I'm going to offer them this kind of stipend. So there are a little bit, uh, a few differences between the two programs. Whether one makes a, is makes more sense for you is really going to depend on your particular um, sort of business's needs and uh, what your employees need as well.
1: Thanks. And so if somebody listening right now is a freelancer, they're self-employed, they don't have employees, do any of these programs apply or should they just go right to the exchange? They should go right to the exchange.
2: Generally, there are sort of minimum um, sizes or sort of qualifying um uh that you you would need to be to qualify for one of these programs so if you are sort of an employee of employer an employee of one it's generally best just to go to the exchange but you still can get some of those tax benefits um in terms of uh sort of claiming deductions when you file your taxes as a self-employed person um so that's an important thing to know about the icra and qsara is those um, contributions to healthcare can be tax deductible, just like an employer plan would be. As well. and and if, cool. some,
1: <laughs> if somebody wants to find out more uh, about these programs uh, to see if their small business is eligible, where, where should they go for help? Um, Great question. There
2: are lots of folks out there, um, brokers um, primarily who can help you um, with ICRA and QSERA. I'll um, say that I work at HealthSherva, which is a web broker, that um, we do help folks with ICRA and QSERA enrollment. So feel free to reach out to us. Um, Or if you, for example, have an employer already offering, um, working with a uh, TPA uh, to offer, a third-party administrator to offer benefits like um, a flexible spending account or a health savings account, that they might also be a good person to reach out to to see if um, that's an option they offer. Um, Cause generally you have to set up all the accounts for these and then you have to go and actually get the coverage. And those can be
1: sometimes two different people helping. Thanks, Alika. And just wanted to note to everybody who's listening that uh, the end of the public health emergency is coming. So if you currently get health insurance through Medicaid, you may get a letter in the mail, or phone call, an email soon. Uh, you should pay attention because they're asking you to verify that you are still eligible for Medicaid. And if it turns out you are not still eligible for Medicaid, you are eligible for a special enrollment period that you'll be able to enroll in insurance through the Affordable Care Act if you are getting dropped from Medicaid. Anything to add, Alka? Yeah, one thing I
2: will add is um, how this generally works is you will be, um, you know, what redetermined out of if you lose your Medicaid on this redetermination process. As Laura mentioned, it's really important to go answer any questions they ask you to check if you're still eligible. Um, if it turns out you're not eligible. Generally, what will happen is you'll sort of get a letter saying you're not eligible and that um, you're going to get an account transfer that's going to happen between the state Medicaid program and the relevant exchange in your state. You do not have to wait for the state exchange to reach out to you. If you have lost your Medicaid, like go to the exchange, go to healthcare.gov. Um, you know, find, uh, submit that application ASAP to make sure that you can get covered soon and not have a gap in
1: coverage. Definitely. And now I'm pleased to introduce our special guest for today's episode, uh, Jonathan Cohn, a senior national reporter for HuffPost and author of The Ten-Year War, Obamacare and the Unfinished Crusade for Universal Coverage. This is his book. <laughs> so Jonathan, tell us about the latest news about the Affordable Care Act and health insurance coverage.
0: Yeah. So first of all, it's, uh, it's an honor to be on with both of you. Uh, we've spoken many years uh, on various uh, methods, including live phone, but also uh, social media. So it's nice to be here live with, with both of you. Um, yeah, the latest news, it's so interesting. So the ACA anniversary um, was Thursday, uh, several days ago. And it so happens that it, that very same day, the state uh, state house, part of the state legislature in North Carolina, um, voted to approve Medicaid expansion for that state. Um, and you know, this it is the same bill that the Senate had, the state Senate had approved uh, previously, and it went to the governor, who literally just signed it, I think, 20 minutes ago. As um, and it's quite a milestone. Um, you know, the story of um, the the story of how. Medicaid expansion came to North Carolina in a lot of ways is a sort of parable about the politics of the Affordable Care Act in general. I mean, I'm sure most of your viewers know, but just to review the original idea of the Affordable Care Act, you know, it's trying to get to universal coverage or as close as possible using this sort of multi-pronged approach, very much designed, you know, not as anybody's ideal system, but, you know, what can we get through Congress? And and, and a lot of that was informed by the sense of, well, let's build on what we have And we have this Medicaid program, already serves Americans, states already run it, people are familiar with it. So the idea was to expand Medicaid to cover everybody living below or just above. And then for other people who made more money, there'd be the exchanges, they'd get private insurance or from their employers. But to kind of take care of the sort of lower portions of the population, there would be Medicaid for everybody. And it was supposed to be automatic, more or less. Every state was going to expand it. Uh, when the Supreme Court heard its first of the big cases and really the most significant of the cases challenging the Affordable Care Act. This was 2012. This was the case about the mandate. And people remember this was the case. And there was all this back and forth. And everybody thought the the Affordable Care Act was going to get thrown out by the court. And John Roberts ended up upholding the mandate, joining the four liberals. And, And for people who were champions of the Affordable Care Act, this was I mean, I remember it was it was a big day, people were very excited, there was a lot of celebration. There was a second part to that decision that didn't get a lot of attention on that day. But the second part was Roberts uh, in a sort of, and it was actually a seven member majority to the Democrat, Democratic appointees joined him and the conservatives in what may have been a deal behind the scenes um, to say that, hey, this Medicaid expansion, this expansion of Medicaid is the way it's structured. Basically states don't really have a choice about whether to implement. And that's not fair. So we're going to make this effectively opt. States can decide. Do we want to expand Medicaid to cover everybody, you know, at below, or just above the poverty line? Or do we want to stick with the way we've had it before, which in many states, especially some of the more conservative states, um, the Medicaid historically has been much stingier. It's been limited to, to certain groups of people at much lower incomes. Um, and so there are large numbers of people who are, you know. They're working part-time jobs, they're working low-paying jobs, um, but they can't find insurance, and so they're uninsured. Um, When this happened, the assumption from a lot of people was, well, it really isn't going to make that big a difference, this court case, because, you know, the way the Medicaid expansion is structured, um, the federal government is picking up almost all the cost. And for a state, it's really, by the numbers, looks like a pretty good deal. The money coming in um, uh, it, it, it goes right into your health sector and then spreads out to the economy. Plus, you know, you're getting insurance to a large number of people. And the feeling was, uh, even though states had to come up with a little bit of the money on their own, most of them would really come out ahead by any reasonable measure and they'd all do it anyway. Well, of course, that didn't happen. You know, The politics of the ACA were so toxic at that point uh, that uh, in, you know, you're sort of Predictably liberal blue states, California, Maryland, Connecticut, one or two outliers like Kentucky, where you had a, a Democratic governor who was very uh, committed to this. They expanded Medicaid, but almost nobody else did. Over the years, that has started to change. Um, we've seen some states where you had kind of more business minded Republican governors get their legislatures to go along. Um, I live in Michigan. And that was the story here. Um, you see, more recently, we've had a bunch of states um, where... Uh, The Republican legislatures, Republican governors would not expand Medicaid. So there have been voter initiatives. People have basically gone around the legislature to the public and gotten these approved. Idaho uh, has had that happen. Uh, There was a a referendum and voter initiative like that in Missouri, et cetera. Um, The feeling was that we kind of hit kind of limiting, uh, diminishing returns on that as well, because there aren't that many of the holdout states. There were about a dozen to start the year. Um, where you could do an initiative. And, and really, you were down to a kind of hardcore of states with a lot of uh, very powerful Republicans in charge of either the legislature or they were governor or both, and they just would not hear about Medicaid expansion. And that had always been the story in North Carolina, where the legislature and for a while, the, the governor who did expansion. And, you know, they, 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 they made several policy arguments about it. They said, look, yes, the federal government's picking up the cost now, but we think they may not keep it up. They may pull that money back. Um, they thought, we don't like Medicaid. It's a broken program. Why could we add more people to it? And, you know, there was a general aversion to sort of it sounded like welfare to them. They thought they were going to suffer some dependency. What's interesting is that um, a Democratic governor got elected in 2016, Roy Cooper. This was his top priority, and he kept at it. Uh, advocacy grassroots groups really kept campaigning on it and they kept a lot of storytelling i think that was actually potentially very important sort of bringing people to the Capitol or getting them on the news to say these are the people who don't have health insurance you know they're farmers There are people who are working two jobs and they don't have health care um you know north carolina has a lot of rural hospitals they were struggling the medicaid expansion would help them uh and eventually uh, over time there was a sort of softening a few a handful of uh, Republican uh, leaders in the legislature embraced it. And then about two years ago, maybe it was a year and a half at this point, uh, two years, two and a half years, um, uh, Phil Berger, who's a state senator, really the most powerful man in Raleigh, according to, uh, you know, uh, one of the papers down there, just a, a real force, a longtime opponent of Medicaid expansion, he turned around and embraced it. And since then, they've been negotiating. And, and that's how they finally got to a deal. You know, there were all kinds of machinations behind the scenes. And the hospitals agreed to an assessment, although they're going to make lots of money back. So money. And there was fights over things like uh, what's called certificate of need legis- you know, requirements, which limit who can open a hospital. But, you know, I think it was a result of all those things I just described. So the advocacy, the leadership by, by Governor Cooper, and then eventually some members of the Republican legislature. The role of these groups a lot of conservative groups local chambers of commerce the rural hospital sheriffs who saw the impact on mental health but i think you take a step back from there there's also a broader story here which is that you know obamacare which was so toxic in so many places for so many years i think it is not as toxic as it used to be um which is not to say it's not controversial or that everybody loves it but we have seen a turnaround and, and i think we saw it in the polls Right around 2017, when it was threatened with repeal, that the public opinion on this really moved, again, not because it's perfect, not because it's what everybody wants it to be, not that conservatives are happy with it, but it's part of the landscape now and the parts that, you know, the protections for pre-existing conditions, this coverage for Medicaid has gotten a lot of acceptance. And as the kind of temperature has dropped on this specific issue, I think it's become easier for Republican lawmakers who maybe before weren't even willing to look at the merits because it was so politicized. I think now they do look at the merits and the the calculus that people imagined after that Supreme Court case is taking place. And they're saying, ah, I don't really know. A lot of these Republicans, they're market oriented. They're conservative. They don't like big government. But you know, I've got a rural hospital in my district. This is money into my district. I do have a lot of people who don't have health insurance. I don't have a better alternative for them right now. Sure, I'll vote for this. And I think that's how that's happened. And in some ways, that's how the politics, I think, of the ACA, you know, have really changed.
1: Mm-hmm. And so uh, right now, there are there's still about 10 states uh, that haven't expanded Medicaid. And that's states like Florida, Georgia, Texas, Tennessee. Uh, so what's it going to take in these states to finally uh, expand Medicaid and get millions of Americans health care?
0: Yeah. So, you know, this is a really good question. I think a lot of activists are adding, asking themselves, and I I don't think there's a single, there's no single answer to this. Um, You know, the lesson I take from North Carolina is that, first of all, it's going to take patience and persistence. Um, If you're an advocate, if you're an act, um, the, you know, the storytelling, the testimony, the reports, the numbers, they do make a difference. It takes time. Um, You know, you have to get people to listen, but there is, you know, there is a chance there's an audience out there. I, I, I think even, uh, you know, Medicaid expansion may not be consistent with what a conservative wants to do generally. You know, they don't believe in big government. They don't want taxes. They don't want spending. Obviously, they're not going to be enthusiastic about Medicaid expansion. But the benefits to their districts are, are pretty real, pretty easy to demonstrate. And at some point, you know, you can you can you can get some attention there. Um, you know, obviously, elections matter, too. I mean, it happened in North Carolina because Roy Cooper became governor uh, and this was an important uh, priority for him. You know, I don't I don't know the details of all the different states that have held up. One, I do know some about because I've reported on it. Also, it's where I grew up, which is Florida. Um, and, you know, that's that's a pretty tough state in a lot of ways because Governor DeSantis, um, he has a pretty clear history on this. Um, he He, he was. Uh, you know, he is a, you know, before everyone knew him as the anti-woke warrior, he was a Tea Party Republican, um, you know, very much uh, opposed to any expansions of government health insurance. And and I will tell you, I did a story about him a few weeks and months ago, I guess at this point, um, I was actually focusing a lot on the uh, Part of the story was looking at this sort of what's going to happen with the the ending of the public health emergency and how states planning for that. And Florida was was among the states that was lagging um, and people that were very, very nervous about what his administration and he really, you know, he has not. As far as I know, I did a lot of research into his position. He has not changed his position on Medicaid expansion. He's opposed it. He opposes it. um, And he does not seem particularly interested in smoothing the transition. I don't know if that's because uh, he it would be happy to see the Medicaid enrollment shrink. He's too busy looking at books in schools or whatever it is that he focused on right now. I will say one interesting thing though, which is that it's very hard to get him to talk about it or his office to talk about it. I never got answers. I, and I, I, Had multiple communications with his communications staff in the governor's office. I never got an answer to this. I know other reporters have had the same experience. My read on that, and this is speculation, so I could be wrong, but my read on that is that the politics of Medicaid are not great for, if you, Medicaid's popular enough now that you don't want to be seen as an opponent of it, and Medicaid expansion is popular. So that tells me that in a state, even in a state like Florida, where Ron DeSantis is very popular, he won re-election by a large margin, he's a conservative Republican, he's got a conservative state house, does not want to step out too clearly as being an opponent of this. And if that is the case, if that is where the politics are, then I tells me there is hope there with enough effort to change minds.
1: So what would you say, uh, the title of your book, in fact, is The Unfinished Crusade for Universal Coverage. So what do you see uh, in the future for how we can get more people in America to get health insurance? How can we get to a point where everyone has health? This is a
0: very good question. Um, I don't know that I have the answer. Um, You know, I would have said, you know, when I wrote the book, so the book came out, I guess, what, two years ago now? Wow, uh, track and half. Um, uh, when I wrote the book, the sort of two biggest things I would suggest, you know, I was thinking was number one to get Medicaid expansion to more states discussing, and then uh, you know the other big problem with the ACA was that um, for a variety of reasons I talk about in the book, and compromises needed to get it through Congress, it really wasn't. It was underfunded from day one, and as a result, the financial buying coverage on their own just it wasn't generous enough, and especially for people kind of in the middle middle, middle class. So, you know, uh, make, you know, family of four making 50, 60, 70, $80,000 a year, maybe more, maybe less, depending on what part of the country you live in. They were really struggling insurance costs, even with getting federal help on the, on the exchanges. And, and, and some cases even well above that um, because cost of living was so um, that obviously has been at least temporarily addressed partially by the sort of extra subsidies that were added to the law first as part of the COVID emergency. And then, um, you know, in the Inflation Reduction Act, Um, extending those, I think, would help. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of just sort of continuing to promote the idea of coverage. Um, I would think, you know, we'll see, maybe see some state innovation in interesting ways. You know, uh, we do have, partly because during the public health emergency Medicaid enrollment grew so much, we're seeing states now trying to think creatively about how not to lose all those people. Um, I think it was. Correct me on this. You, you two may know better than I do. Didn't Oregon just recently yep. uh, pass presumptive continuous, which is a very you know big sounding word, but basically for kids, you're on Medicaid, you stay on Medicaid, and which makes a lot of sense. In about ten different, so I wouldn't be surprised if we see that. Uh, we were talking a little bit before off air about New Mexico experimenting with a kind of expansion of Medicaid that would be open to anybody as like a public option. So. You know, maybe we'll see some states experiment. I mean, look, I I said in the book, I believe this, there's a very strong case for a true national system like we see overseas, whether it's a true single payer Medicare for all system or a hybrid system like they have in France or even competing private plans like they do in the Netherlands, where they're really treated more like public utilities. Um, Getting to that, I think, you know, that would be true. That's how I think you need to get to that to get to truly universal coverage, just because Every, you know, you get, you get, you're born, you get coverage, you know, you immigrate into the country for however many years you get coverage and you're in the system, you never leave it. We're pretty far away from that because we have this patchwork system and, and I don't know what it will take to get to that kind of system. I, you know, I think probably the path there at some point is somebody's going to come up with an automatic enrollment for children. And they'll just age and, you know, I and and then they age and they, they stay with their insurance. And then eventually they age, you know, that kind of works through the generations and everyone's got covered. But that's like a it's like a hundred year process. So I don't know if that's really encouraging <laughs> people who want.
1: Well, that'll be your next book, The Hundred Year War. For there you go. Universal there you go. The
0: title, it writes itself, right?
1: Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you everybody for listening. Uh, Please keep calling and texting in your questions and we'll answer them in future episodes. And this is Care Talk.